One of the highlights of my life is this gathering to worship Jesus with you. This past Wednesday night, we had a prayer meeting as a church in which we, we met in this room. And my goodness, did the Lord come and meet with us. But one of the things I kept praying over and over was a, a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for allowing me to be a part of this church. I delight in you and love you so much. And I can't believe I have the privilege of being pastor of the best church in the whole wide world. One of the things that encourages me is that we as a, we as a church, we're serious about the gospel. And we indeed want to get the gospel to the nations. Uh, this past week, one of our church members was laboring in the nation of India and she shared with me a couple of testimonies of people who've come to faith in Christ. I can't share their their names for security purposes but these are some of the stories that she shared with me. This person, her name begins with the letter R, said, I was born and brought up in a Hindu family. We were from a higher caste. We were staunch practitioners of Hinduism In my village, there were a few Christians, but we would look down on them. They were all from lower castes. Nine months ago, one of the workers on our fish farm came to me and shared the gospel with me. I had just heard it and ran away, but the next three days, I couldn't sleep. I saw dreams, and that made me very scared. Then I shared the news with my worker, and he invited me to a gathering in the neighborhood, introduced me to to a pastor. He laid hands on my head and prayed to Jesus. This prayer changed my life. That night, I slept peacefully, and then I visited this pastor again, and he shared the gospel, and I received Jesus into my life. This person, their name starts with letter A, said, I was born and brought up in a Hindu family. We as a family were so devoted to our gods and regularly visited temples. I'm married and have two children, and I've been suffering from epilepsy since I was 18, Due to this problem, my husband and his family were looking down upon me, and I have experienced great mental agony. My neighbor shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me and invited me to come to her house church. I went there, and the leaders all prayed over me. Those prayers brought healing in my life, and I have since accepted Jesus Christ into my life and have shared the gospel with the rest of my family as well. There is much joy and happiness in my life. This man, his name is, uh, starts with letter S. He says, I am 52 years old. I live with my 80-year-old mother. My father passed away when I was 10. I developed dr- into drinking alcohol from a young age. Because of my habit, nobody gave me a wife. I became sick with COVID and I was hospitalized. One day, a group of Christians visited the hospital to pray with sick people. The leader of the group went inside the isolated room where I was. He prayed for me. Jesus not only healed me from COVID, but he also delivered me from alcohol. Me and my 80-year-old mother gave our lives to Jesus, and we are now different people in the village in which we live. Isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel of Jesus Christ changes our lives. He changes us both in the here and in the hereafter. The gospel is precious. And it's worthy of getting this great and glorious gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our mission as a church. Westwood exists to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. We desire all people to be saved and come to a saving knowledge of the truth because that is the heart of God. We have seen God's 
heart for the nations through the Apostle Paul. We have seen in Acts 13, and as we're going to see all the way up through Acts 28, where Paul is laboring and giving his life so that all people might come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Well, what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 18 is the Apostle Paul finishing up his second missionary journey and then boomeranging, boomeranging right back out into his third missionary journey. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We are going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. We've taken a little bit of a break over the holiday season, and we are now jumping right back into this great historical narrative of the early church, of, of how the church began. But before we jump into Acts chapter 18, if you will allow me just a few moments, I kind of want to set the table of where we're going to be going and leading up to this text. If we were to backpedal all the way to Genesis chapter 1, we see that it is the heart of God to see the whole earth filled with image bearers, people reflecting what God is like. Unfortunately, when sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3 through our first parents, sin brought destruction, disease, divorce. Ultimately, it brings death, a separation between God and mankind. But God loves mankind. God so loved the world that he had a plan. He was going to send forth a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer who would bring mankind back to himself. We see in Genesis chapter 12 that God sets a man apart whose name is Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, through you, through your family, through your offspring, I am going to bless the nations. Eventually, over time, God brings to Abraham a son. His son's name is Isaac, and after Isaac comes Jacob. From Jacob comes 12 sons, where we see the, ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel. When we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we see where Israel and the entire family, 70 of them in all, are in Egypt. They're living in the land of Egypt, where God has preserved and protected the family of God. You fast forward about 400 years, that number of 70 has now multiplied into the millions. The people of Israel have multiplied, but there's now a Pharaoh who's leading and governing over Egypt who has forgotten Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He has forgotten what God has done. He begins to enslave and to bring suffering and difficulty upon the people of God. The people turn to the Lord, ask him for salvation, and Lord raises up a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer, a prophet, a man by the name of Moses. Now Moses is not the ultimate prophet, but he is the one who will lead God's people out of an uh, in, in exodus out of Egypt towards the promised land. But Moses is only pointing forward to an even greater exodus that will take place for God's people from sin and death. Because eventually Moses dies off and God raises up a new leader. His name is Joshua. Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land where they begin to divide up the land amongst the tribes where people would begin to settle and they would live. But after Joshua dies, we see for about 400 years or so, the people of God go through this cycle of disobedience. A cycle of apostasy, some might call it. The people of God are following the Lord. They're trusting in him. They're obeying him. But then they begin turning their hearts away from him. They start worshiping other gods. And it leads to destruction, difficulty, and slavery. The people turn to the Lord. They ask for a savior, a rescuer, someone who will save us. And God will raise up a judge, a savior, who comes in and saves his people. The people return back to a right relationship with God 
only to fall back into sin again. The cycle continues for quite a while. And eventually the people go to the Lord and say, we would like a king. Just like all the nations around us, we want a king. God says, I will be your king. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want a real king just like everybody else. So God says, okay. God gives them, first of all, King Saul. A king that ultimately turns his heart away from the Lord. God then raises up another king, a king after his own heart, David. And God makes a covenant, a promise to David. He says, David, I'm going to raise up from you a son. And this son is going to sit on your throne forever. He is going to rule over my people. Everyone anticipates that the son of David would probably be that rescuer, that savior who's going to rule and reign forever. We see Solomon raise up, man of wisdom and wealth, but ultimately his heart does not remain faithful unto the Lord. In fact, things get worse after Solomon. We see after Solomon's death that the nation of Israel divides up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom takes ten tribes called the nation of Israel. The southern kingdom becomes the people of Judah. Separation. There's a civil war between these two groups, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is led only by wicked kings who turn their hearts away from the Lord. Eventually, God brings judgment on the northern kingdom through the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes in, sacks the kingdom, takes the people into slavery, and they never return. In fact, those people who are Jewish who remain in the land intermarry with Gentiles, which is where we get the Samaritans, which we will see much later on. The southern kingdom is led by a mixture of good kings and bad kings. There were some good kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah, but then there were mostly wicked kings who come along and turn the hearts of the people away from the Lord. Eventually, God brings judgment through the nation of Babylon. Babylon sacks Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah, take the people into slavery, but God makes a promise. You're only going to go into slavery for 70 years. And then I'm going to bring my people back. Based upon the covenant I made with David, I'm going to bring my people back into my land. Sure enough, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, which is easy to say, he comes back and he begins to lead the people. We see where Nehemiah begins to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And we see the people being reestablished, but the glory of Israel just ain't what it used to be. God brings along prophets who begin to point the people back to the Lord, but... Eventually, the people hear a silence. 400 years of silence. No prophet. No new revelation from God. After Malachi, they're just waiting. But in the meantime, God is at work. We see where the Greeks rise up. There's world domination amongst the Greeks. What do they do? They spread a language where people begin to have one language in which they will speak. I'll come back to that in a moment. After the Greeks come the Romans, these engineers. They make these roads that connect the nations. God is at work. And after the 400 years of silence, as people are wondering, God, where are you? You promised a savior. You promised a deliverer. Here we are suffering. Where are you? All of a sudden, there is a voice out in the wilderness. John the Baptist begins preaching repentance, calling people away from sin and away from self, and he is preparing the way for the Savior. He is paving the way as a trailblazer, preparing the way for the Messiah. And eventually we see the Messiah come onto the scene, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Jesus is the one who is promised from the Old Testament. Jesus is the blessed, um, the blessing to the nations from Abraham. Jesus is the son of David who will rule over God's people forever and sit on David's throne. Jesus is the son of God and the son of man. He proves his deity through his miracles and by his works and actions and his teachings. He proves his humanity by being touchable and approachable. He is 100% God, 100% man, and he comes and fulfills perfectly the law of Moses, which no one on this, on this earth could ever do. Jesus lived that perfect sinless life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserved on the cross. But indeed, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins of all all who trust upon him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to bring people back into a right relationship with God. As the perfect mediator between God and man, Jesus brings mankind back to the Lord. What we see Jesus do is he dies and he is buried, but he only borrows a tomb for three days. For on the third day, Jesus comes back to life and he defeats death. He is alive and well. He appears to hundreds of people after his resurrection, proving his victory over death itself. He allows people to come and to touch him, to see that he really is physically alive. He ate meals proving he really is the resurrected king and Messiah. After 40 days, he goes up onto the Mount of Olives where he ascends up into heaven, where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. The good news of this Savior who has come for the world, this rescuer, this redeemer, now must get to the ends of the earth. Remember those 400 years of silence? Now the gospel has a language that can be understood around the world and now there are roads through which the gospel can now travel. Jesus made a promise before he ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus, the true and greater prophet, the one who is faithful, the one who makes promises and keeps promises, is shown himself as true. For in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. 3,000 people hear the gospel. They repent of their sins and believe the gospel. The church is born. We see where miracles, Acts chapter 3, are accompanied through the apostles. And more and more people are believing the gospel. And the church is growing in momentum. Now, persecution begins to arise up in Acts chapter 4 against the early church. As Jesus is being preached amongst the people of Jerusalem, the church is getting stronger. There are those who are pushing back. We also see some difficulty begin arising within the early church on the inside. In Acts chapter 5, we see a husband and wife who be, who, um, who be, what's up, who lied. Y'all, word, words are hard. <clears throat> They lie to the church, they lie to the Holy Spirit about how much money they're giving to the church. So to protect the integrity of, and the truthfulness of the gospel, God kills them. Ananias and Sapphira, they die, Acts chapter 5. We also see conflict arising within the early church in Acts chapter 6, where we see some widows who are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. But God in his infinite wisdom loves and protects his church, and so the apostles raise up deacons who will take care of the physical needs of the church so that the word of God can continue to go forth. And we see God brings peace and harmony amongst the church. But then one of those deacons in Acts chapter 7 stands up before the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem leadership of all of Israel, 
And this man, Stephen, stands up and he preaches the word. He walks through the Old Testament narrative and points to its fulfillment in Jesus. He then points a finger at the Sanhedrin and says, you are the ones who killed the Messiah. His blood is on your hands. They did not take kindly to this gospel message that Stephen preaches. And so what do they do? They kill him. They stone him to death. In this stoning of Stephen, it brings fear and panic within the church. We see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, where the church scatters. They are running for their lives, trying to get to safety, fearful of the persecution that's coming against them. But as they are running for their lives, God is up to something. Because as they're going, they're preaching the gospel. Churches are being planted and established. We see a movement of the Holy Spirit that what Jesus said would happen back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's happening in Acts 8. The church is scattering. But one of those guys that was there when Stephen was being killed was the guy holding the coats. His name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus, a man who was breathing out murderous threats, Acts chapter 9, against the church. He wanted to stop this movement. He wanted to prevent these quote-unquote heretics of the way who are spreading this false message. He wanted to stop them in their tracks. He wanted to arrest them, and ultimately he wanted to see them killed. But something happens on the Damascus Road. He encounters the risen Christ. The Lord Jesus appears to, the, to Saul, and he is humbled he realizes who Jesus is, and his life is radically transformed. He goes from being a terrorist to a church planter. God grabs hold of this guy's life, and he is forever changed. We then see Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, he re-enters into the, the story, where he goes under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to a group of Gentiles. And he goes and he preaches the gospel, and the craziest thing happens the same Holy Spirit that fell in Acts chapter 2 upon the Jews in Jerusalem is now falling in Acts chapter 10 upon the Gentiles. It is shocking to Peter. He can't believe it. You're telling me, you, you Gentiles, you all get to get in on this too? It's an incredible moment in the history of the church where the Jewish leadership and the Jewish believers are blown away. Like, oh my goodness, they get in on the gospel too. So Peter then goes, Acts chapter 11, to Jerusalem and says, guys, you're not going to believe this. But the same spirit is now for the Gentiles. They're so blown away. We see Acts chapter 11, verse, eight, verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. And they glorified God saying, so then, God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. We then see this movement of the Holy Spirit where the church is being strengthened and established and the gospel is going forth. And then we catch back up with that guy named Saul. Acts chapter 13. He's in a city of Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And in this church, he's one of the pastors, teachers. He's preaching the word and strengthening the church through his teaching. And while the church is praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to do. What do we see in Acts chapter 13? The first international mission team. We see Saul and Barnabas are sent out by the church and they begin taking the gospel into new territories, new cities, new countries, new peoples who have never heard the gospel. And what begins happening is people are listening and they're leaning in. 
And they're hearing the gospel. They're trusting in Christ. They begin planting churches. We see leaders being established who are shepherding and leading these churches. And these people are following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. But then this question begins to, be, uh, begins to pervade the early church in Acts 15. And the question is this. These Gentiles, these people who are not Jewish, who are now coming to faith in Christ, is their salvation uh, by grace alone or should they try to keep Jewish rules and customs just like the Jews do? And there's this argument, this debate. These Jews are like, hey, they should, they should keep Old Testament law just like us. So there's this big summit, this big leadership meeting in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And the church leaders come together and they begin to debate and to wrestle through this theological truth. Is, is salvation by grace alone or is it grace plus works? Peter finally says, y'all... Why in the world are we going to place this yoke of burden upon these Gentiles to keep this Old Testament law that we ourselves can't even keep? So the Jerusalem Council comes to the conclusion that salvation is by grace alone. And they send a letter out to churches. Let them know, hey, listen, you are saved by grace alone. And the Gentiles are like, let's go, right? And, but the Jerusalem Council also tells them two things. We want to ask you to do something. We want you to be conscious of the consciences of Jewish brothers and sisters, especially when the foods you, the foods, the kinds of foods that you eat. And we want to ask you to pursue sexual purity. Gentiles are like, sounds good. We'll move forward. After that, we then see in Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul jumps back on the mission field. Second missionary journey. He follows the same path that he did on his first journey, but then the Holy Spirit begins leading him into a new territory. We see him go across a specific, I think it's the Aegean Sea. And it's there he enters into the continent of Europe for the very first time. He goes to the city of Philippi. It's an amazing work of God in which this female entrepreneur named Lydia comes to faith in Christ. This demon slave girl, she comes to faith in Christ. This Roman jailer, he comes to faith in Christ. The Philippian church made up of a woman, a former slave girl, and a Gentile. It's an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. Church is planted and established. Paul then moves on to other cities like Thessalonica and to Athens and to other places. So here we are. Acts chapter 18. Paul is finishing up his second missionary journey. He has planted churches. He has established leaders. The time has come for him to start heading back towards Antioch. The gospel that began in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 has now spread all the way to Europe and beyond. What we see here in Acts 18, beginning with verse 18, the scripture says this. After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, he shaved his head at Kentrea because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined. But he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. 
After spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul completes his second missionary journey. He then boomerangs right back out to start his third missionary journey. The mission continues. In Westwood, here we are in 2024, and the mission remains. The mission continues. There are still people all over the world in desperate need of Jesus who are in need of a gospel witness. And you and I have these brief, temporary lives to live. As what we're about to see from the leadership of the Apostle Paul, oh, that God would stir within each of us as individual believers, within you as a family, and indeed within us as a congregation, that we would be about the mission of the Great Commission. I want you to notice that if we're going to finish the task of testifying to Jesus faithfully, I want you to see the three things we got to do. The first thing is this. Enjoy the gift of gospel-centered friendships. Enjoy the gift of gospel-centered friendships. We're first introduced to Priscilla and Aquila earlier in chapter 18. This husband-wife A duo left Rome due to persecution, and God providentially brings them to Corinth. It's there that they meet Paul, who's a tent maker just like them, and they become lifelong companions. Throughout his ministry, the Apostle Paul praises God for his friends who contend for the gospel at his side. This lifelong friendship is one of God's good gifts to Paul. And to them. In fact, when Paul is anticipating his future martyrdom, he writes in 2 Timothy 4, he tells young Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. One of his last words of his letter writing, he's thinking of his friends. He was thinking of his brother and his sister, his husband-wife tandem, who have worked alongside him in the ministry. You see, one of God's good gifts to you in your life are friendships that point you to Jesus. In order for you and I, hear me on this, to persevere to the end, if you want to finish faithfully, you can't go alone. You and I need the local church, and we need good, gospel-centered friends who will encourage us and champion us and walk alongside us, who will pray for us and push us as we follow hard after Jesus. People who will love us enough to tell the truth. Because you and I, as we intentionally pursue these gospel-centered friendships, these friendships that can bear the burden of truth, people who can speak hard words into our lives. We see this with Paul and Barnabas, who have a conflict at the beginning of their second missionary journey, in which they have an argument over what to do with John Mark. We see this with Paul and even with, um, with Peter, where we read in the book of Galatians, where Paul rebukes Peter Because he's acting one way in front of the Jewish part of the church and a different way in the Gentile part of the church. It's a relationship that can bear the burden of truth. Having people in your life who can rebuke you. Question, do you have that? Do you have people in your life who will push back against you, tell you when you're being an idiot? I need that. People who say, man, Kenneth, I love you right now. What are you doing? What are you thinking? You need these people in your life. I remember when I was a new believer in Jesus, I I still had a lot of old Kenneth Bruce still within me. And one of the things that I used to really enjoy before I came to faith in Jesus is I would listen to really bad uh, rap music. Um, and, I, and I would just listen to it. And even to this day, I can still quote a lot of those things. And it's, I'm, I'm a work in progress. One day, I'm on University of Kentucky's campus. I headed to class. 
riding with my buddy, and I've got one of my CDs in. And I'm going right along with the lyrics and just going right back with it. And my buddy looked at me. He hit eject, took my CD, and threw it out the window. Uh huh. Better believe that, Jim. And I was like, bro, what are you doing? I was mad. And he said, Kenneth, you follow Jesus now. We don't listen to that anymore. I needed that rebuke. I need someone who could tell me the truth. What we see with the Apostle Paul is God gives him friends, brothers and sisters who are going to encourage him as he follows hard after Jesus. Ministry is going to be really hard and lonely for the Apostle Paul. So God gives him the gift of friendships. And hear me on this. There are going to be times in your life in which you're going to feel really alone. One of God's good gifts to you are friendships. People who are going to point you to Jesus. Who are going to love you enough to tell you the truth. Who are going to encourage you. They're going to pray for you. They're going to champion you. They're going to rebuke you. They're going to bring you more meals when you're sick. They're going to walk alongside you. And you're going to do the same for them. But you've got to intentionally pursue it. What we see happening here is Paul is partnering with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, we're going to unpack Priscilla and Aquila more next week. I can't wait to show you some more about this, this couple. But it's amazing to me that in order for you and I to persevere in the faith, we've got to have friends in our lives who will point us to Jesus. The second thing I want you to see in the text is be grateful for God's work in your life. Be grateful for God's work in your life. Now, what we're about to unpack here, it's going to feel like theological gymnastics, but it's not. But it's complicated, and I'm going to do my very best to simplify it. So can you stay with me for a moment? Luke makes an interesting statement in verse 18. He makes reference to Paul cutting his hair. Now, this hair cutting is not for a fashion statement. It's a Jewish outward expression that he had just ended a vow. Now, if you were to backpedal back to Numbers chapter 6, we see where God gives instruction on how Jews were to fulfill a Nazarite vow. Now, there's some very specific instruction given in Numbers chapter 6, but in essence, you don't cut your hair, and it's a strict bread and water diet. And you're communicating to those around you that you are taking a period of time in which you are consecrating yourself to the Lord. Now, according to the Mishnah, which is Jewish oral law, a Nazarite vow would last from 30, 60, or 100 days. And during this time, someone would, they would commit themselves. They would be consecrated all, all to the Lord. It was a commitment to say, God, I'm putting you first in my life. Now, as followers of Jesus, we no longer take a Nazarite vow because consecration unto the Lord is not designated to a period of time, but indeed it is all of our lives. You and I say, Lord Jesus, you are Lord over all of my life. I'm not quarantining you to a Sunday morning. God, I'm not going to say I'm only going to live for you and I'm going to honor you for 30, 60, or 100 days, but God, you can have all of my heart in my life. I am fully committed to living a holy life because I want to honor Jesus in every facet of who I am. So today, as followers of Jesus, we no longer follow a Nazarite vow. But I want you to stay with me on this. 
A vow was also an outward demonstration of gratitude to God for his gracious blessing or deliverance. Let me say that sentence again, okay? A vow was an outward demonstration of gratitude to God for his gracious blessing or deliverance. Think about where Paul has been the last 18 months. He's been in Corinth, a pagan city, a group of people who are full of sexual immorality and godlessness and wickedness. And while he's there, he's preaching the gospel. A church is being planted. There's a movement of the Holy Spirit. He begins facing some persecution. But there's good news. All right, put your finger on verse 9. Jesus there appears to Paul and says, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Jesus promised Paul his presence and his protection while he was in Corinth. Even when we see later on in the passage there in chapter 18, when Paul is brought before Gallio, the proconsul, Jesus stood with him. Now, as he faces difficulty in his life, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stand there with you. And may I say this to you today as a follower of Jesus, no matter what you face, Jesus stands with you. When you go into the hospital and you're laying there and you feel alone, you're not alone, Jesus is with you. When you are facing difficulty and persecution from the people that you love, Jesus is with you. When your boss slides a pink slip across the table, Jesus is with you. When you walk through hardship and pain and trial and difficulty, Jesus is with you. These are one of the precious and very great promises that he makes to you. Matthew 28, 20. I will be with you even to the end of the age. Not for a second does Jesus ever leave you. Jesus will never stiff-arm you. He will never walk away from you. He will no, never throw his arms up in disgust and frustration. May I say to you, Jesus is not mad at you. He loves you. You are loved by God. The enemy would love to whisper in our ears that God is frustrated with us, that he's annoyed by us, that he's angry with us. He's not. If you are in Christ, you belong to him. He sings over you. He delights in you. You are loved. And so as Paul is going through a stressful, difficult, painful experience in Corinth, yes, he's seeing gospel movement, but he's also experiencing persecution. He takes a vow in gratitude to God that the Lord made a promise, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to walk with you. And not for a second am I going to leave you. And you have my protection. And I've got your back. And I'm going to be with you all the way to the end. And may I say to you today, beloved, Jesus says the same thing to you. I'm with you. I've got you. Not for a second am I going to walk away from you. I am faithful. And when your children and grandchildren walk away from me, don't you dare fret because better believe I'm going to be with you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to display my grace, power, and glory in and through your life. This is what we hold fast to as followers of Jesus. And so here is Paul taking this vow in gratitude for God for his kindness towards him while he is there in Corinth. You see, as a Jew, 
Paul wanted to demonstrate his gratitude for God, for his blessing, for his deliverance on his life. So he takes this vow. He honors the Lord. You see, Paul still had a lot of Jewish customs and traditions within him. Yes, he was a new creation in Christ, but he still had Jewish practices and and culture within him. It would be kind of like, can you imagine trying to stop speaking with a southern accent? And you are no longer allowed to watch or follow college football. And you can no longer eat fried fried chicken or drink sweet tea. And some of you are like, forget it, I'm out. Like, I can't do that, right? Why? Those things are so ingrained within you, right? If I were to say Chick-fil-A is now off the table, you can't have any more. You're like, what? Like, that's part of the culture of who I am. That's what's happening with Paul. In fact, that's what he told the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. You see, Paul had experienced this, this favor of Jesus in his life, and so he responds in his Jewishness, in the way that he knows Numbers chapter 6. This is how I'm to respond. This is what he's doing here. But I want you to hear me on this. You don't have to take a Nazarite vow to show God how grateful you are for him working in your life. You get to live a life to honor Jesus Christ and with gratitude say, Lord, I want to thank you for your presence and your protection in my life. And so, Lord, I just want to live my life for you. You can make the vow, but there's an even greater commitment that you can make today saying, Lord, I'm not going to give you 30, 60, or 100 days. God, you can have all of my life. So we want to be grateful for God's work in our life. The third thing we see in the text, to finish the task of testifying to Jesus faithfully, you must develop the grit to continue the task. Grit. I love that word. It's a characteristic that I feel like is missing today. As Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they, tra- uh, Aquila they, they travel 222 miles from Corinth to Ephesus, verse 19. The Jews longed for Paul to stay longer. We want you to stay in Ephesus. But Paul had to get back to Jerusalem to complete his vow, according to number six. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind in Ephesus to continue the gospel work. He's not leaving the city without a a gospel presence. He then travels 615 miles to Jerusalem, verse 22. He gets there. He encourages the church. He tells them all the incredible things that God has been doing. He then makes the 300-mile trip north back to Antioch. He spends some time there. He strengthens the church. He tells them what God's doing in and through the mission field. And then what does he do? He gets right back on the mission field. He starts heading towards Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening believers. He's encouraging. He's praying. He's preaching. See, Paul was relentless. Like he's living his life like his hair is on fire. Like there is this... This this passion to see the gospel go forth to those who have never heard. It was his heartbeat to see healthy, Jesus-honoring, gospel-soaked churches planted and established all over the world. And he was going to give his best to make that happen. He had this holy grit to accomplish the task. He had that dog in him. 
He has the Holy Spirit who is empowering him with a work ethic to impact his world for Jesus because he knew the mission remains. Because Paul knew Genesis 1. It is God's desire for the world to be filled with image bearers. And not just image bearers, but image bearers who know him. That indeed the Great Commission is to fulfill God's desire of filling the earth with people who know and love God. Just like Adam and Eve did before the fall. And when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are restored back into a right relationship with God. So here's what I want to challenge you to do today. It's your impact point. Give your life to this. Give your life to strengthen believers through your encouragement, your prayers, and your love for Jesus. As you think about your brief temporary life, here today, gone tomorrow, James says, oh, that we would give our lives to seeing churches and believers strengthened, encouraged, prayed for, growing more in love with Jesus. In fact, what a great New Year's resolution to make on January the 14th. This year, I want to love Jesus more. And I want, I want to know him, and I want to make him known. That's what we get to give our lives to. Until Jesus calls you home, or until he returns, the mission continues. And Westwood, we got work to do.